Over the past five Sundays, we've worked our way from Isaiah 13 to 29, chapters in which God's people, Judah, find themselves in the way of the most powerful fighting force that the world had ever seen. The Assyrian army's innovative use of iron and cavalry had made them an unstoppable force, and they were using their unrivaled strength to establish a universal kingdom under their own name. Quite literally, the title that Assyrian emperors went by during Isaiah's lifetime was King of Assyria, King of Babylon, King of the Four Corners of the World, King of the Universe. But to cement that claim was going to mean stamping all over Judah, not because Judah was especially important, but because Judah was especially in the way. Assyria didn't much care about Judah, but they did care about Egypt and Egypt's millennia of cultural prestige. Assyria had the express goal of conquering Egypt in order to fulfill its ideological mission of ruling the world. And who sat directly between Assyria and Egypt? Judah, which meant that for Assyria to get to Egypt, it would mean plowing straight through them. So here's who Judah was, as we've seen each week in human terms during Isaiah's days. Judah was a small but necessary defeat in a plan that was far bigger than they were, leaving them then and us now with this question, who will God's people trust when the powerful enemy is kicking down the gate. Through these chapters, Isaiah has been laying out the case for trusting the Lord. He's been pulling back the curtain of history to reveal the rock of ages, the Lord, the Lord himself, the rock eternal, who is upholding and ordering all things for the good of his people. From 13 to 27, in a series of oracles and visions, Isaiah set out the basic principles through which God rules over reality. And then last week, in chapters 28 to 29, Isaiah turned his focus from the Lord and his trustworthiness to God's people, Judah, and Judah's decision about whether or not they would trust him. We had three images. Uh, The dying wreath on the head of a drunkard, describing Judah's northern neighbor, The blanket that's too small to sleep under, describing the lies in which Judah had sought refuge, and the farmer who knows wheat from cumin and quinoa. Because if Judah's farmers were willing to listen to the law of God as he has written it into nature, then why weren't Judah's lawmakers? Now, with that context in mind, and those images in mind turn over the page to chapter 32, verse 18, which is on page 718. And let me read verses 18 to 20. 32, verse 18 says, My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Though hail flattens the forest and the city is leveled completely, how blessed you will be, sowing your seed by every stream and letting your cattle and donkeys range free. Gosh, they're not at peace, are they? (laughs) (laughs) And so my question for us, the question I have for us today, uh, with that din in the background, is how and when will that happen? 
How and when do we get to the peace of 32 verse 18? How and when will God's people and their cattle and their donkeys get to that sort of peace? How do we get from the waking nightmare of 28 verse 19 to the undisturbed peace of 32 verse 18? Over the next two weeks, uh, we're going to see that question answered. And today I've got four points for us, two whens and two hows, or uh, perhaps two whens and two how nots. Because we're still in the middle of Isaiah's series of woes for Judah. But in 30 to 32, the chapters we're looking at this evening, those woes become more specific, more specific about what Judah has done. And at the very same time, more specific about how God's promises will all come true. So, how will peace come to God's people? Point one, peace will come through rest, not speed. Look with me at chapter 30, back again on page 715, chapter 30, verse 15. And let me read those two verses for us. Chapter 30, verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. For chapter after chapter, Isaiah has been setting out the case for trusting the Lord. And for week after week, that's been our main application. Uh, But I think it can actually be quite a hard and tricky thing to apply in practice. Because put my trust in the Lord, well, it's not something I can ever tick off my to-do list. It isn't something I can put in my Google calendar. It isn't a number that I can record next to my step count. It isn't even something I can straightforwardly prioritize as though it were one distinct job among many. Trust in the Lord is a command for all people at all times in all places, which can make it strangely hard to apply because it isn't something you can easily measure or easily complete. But Isaiah 30, verse 15, well, this verse provides us with one very clear test for whether or not we are trusting the Lord. And it's this one. If there is no rest in my diary, or if there is no quietness in my diary, then I am not trusting the Lord, and I will not know his peace and salvation. If I keep on refusing to rest and be still, then eventually, this verse says, I will lose the ability to. And that is especially important to remember during times of crisis. Because at this point, we might want to stick up and jump to the defense of Judah. Like, they have the Neo-Assyrian Empire banging down the door Can you blame them if they are saddling up their horses? Can you blame them if they've started thinking about how quickly they can flee? Or maybe you're thinking about your own situation or the situation of a friend. Like if you knew the pressure she's under at work or the crisis he's facing at home or what will happen if I don't get these things done, then maybe you'd have more sympathy for how little time I get for rest. And let's be clear here, hard work 
is not the opposite of faith, and neither is planning. We are saved by faith alone, not by works, but living faith always leads to good works. So it is good to work hard as a Christian, because work is not the opposite of faith, it's the fruit of faith. But do you know what is the opposite of faith? Restlessness. The refusal to ever rest. Restlessness and faith are genuinely incompatible because faith says, God, you are God, I am not, and I trust you even when I don't understand you. But restlessness says, if I was a bit more godlike, then I wouldn't have all these problems. Faith says, God is at work even when I'm not, and he knows what he's doing even when I don't. But restlessness says, do you know, I could probably solve these problems if I had a few more horses or a bit more time or slightly fewer limitations. Restlessness, well, it thinks that my limitations are my problem. But faith knows that my limitations are the proof that God is God and I am not. Restlessness and faith are genuinely incompatible. And the more urgent our problems are, the more important it is that we remember that. Because the moment when the Neo-Assyrian Empire starts banging down your door would be the worst possible moment to decide to try your hand at being God for the day. To decide to try and be better at being God than God is. The moment when the world is up in your face, pressuring you to breaking point, would be the worst possible moment to pretend you are limitless and to substitute your own little strength for the strength of the Lord, the Rock Eternal. One of the dangers of technology is that it can trick us into thinking that we can overcome our own problems by overcoming our own limitations. It can trick us into thinking that there is nothing that we can't know, nothing we can't do, and nowhere we can't be, or no problem that we can't fix. As though faster horses, or faster Wi-Fi, or faster commutes, or accelerated medical breakthroughs could make us fit for the throne of heaven. But no matter how new your MacBook is, or how close you live to your nearest tube stop, or how quickly you can access money or medication, you will not be better at being God than God is. And he will not tolerate you trying to be. Technology can trick us into thinking we can be our own saviors, and the worst possible moment to fall for that lie is when we actually do really need saving. So next time you're under pressure, work hard, but whatever you do, do not refuse to be quiet and rest. We're coming into exam season, uh, so I want to offer a really practical application for anyone who has an exam in the next six months. It's a habit I got into during my A-levels, and it's this. When the examiner says, you may now turn over your papers and there is a frantic rustle followed by a frenzy of scribbling, 
Don't turn over your paper, not yet. Not right away. Sit and wait. And for 30 seconds, quietly devote the first 30 seconds of your exam to God. You could pray, or you could recall a Bible verse if you wanted, or you could just sit quietly in the middle of that frenzied exam hall, resting in the truth that your heavenly father is as mightily at work for you in those 30 seconds as he has been for all eternity. You are not the rock eternal, so don't try to be. Point one, peace will come through rest, not speed. And point two, peace will come through the spirit, not the flesh. Look down at chapter 31, which is over the page, and verse 1 on page 716. Chapter 31, and let me read verses 1 and verse 3. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. And then verse 3, the Egyptians are mere mortals and not gods. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. Judah fell for the lie that horses could save them. And they fell for that lie in the worst possible moment, the moment when they really genuinely did actually need saving. But their mistake was actually even worse than that. Because the horses they hoped would save them, these weren't just any old horses. They were Egypt's horses. And Judah had no excuse for forgetting how useless Egypt's help would be to them. Judah had no excuse for forgetting that the Egyptians were mortal or that their horses were made of flesh. Judah really, really should have known better than to trust Egypt for salvation because Egypt was the very nation from which their God had famously delivered them in the past. Israel and Judah had been slaves in Egypt, and God had saved them out of the hands of the Egyptians. They even wrote a whole song about it in Exodus chapter 15, about how their God was highly exalted and had hurled Egypt's horses and riders into the sea. And now, Judah was returning to the very power from which they had once been delivered, which might be funny if it wasn't so familiar. Because isn't this what all of us constantly do when we're under pressure? Don't we constantly look for salvation to the very flesh which used to enslave us and from whose enslaving power we have been set free by Jesus? When we feel hard done by, don't we stoke up our impatience and anger and expect those vices to vindicate us. When we feel underappreciated, don't we console ourselves by puffing up our pride or filling up with greed? When we're treated badly, or we're scared, or we're tired, or we're lonely, aren't we more tempted to give ourselves over to cruelty or cowardice, to laziness, or to lust? 
if you're anything like me, well, then Judah's decision will feel horribly familiar to you. The decision to give yourselves back to the very powers from which you have been set free. And if you're anything like me, sometimes you'll know that's what you're doing, but sometimes you won't even notice it. We thought last week about the tight web of lies on which the modern West is built. Lies like the lies of materialism, that it's only what I can touch and see and buy that's really real. Or the lies of secularism, that what I can see and touch and buy and sell is stable enough to build a whole society on. Or the lies of liberalism, that society and education and culture and even healthcare should be oriented around maximizing my individual choices. Or the lies of progressivism, that all those other lies will come gloriously true in the future if only we will dishonor our fathers and mothers. Friends, these lies are lies from which we have already been set free as Christians. We have been set free from slavery to the flesh, slavery to things that can be seen and touched and bought and sold and physically and bodily experienced. We've been set free from slavery to self, slavery to my own desires and choices and attractions and appetites. We've been set free from slavery to the empty promises of the world that our future will be secure if only we indulge in a little bit of selfishness or a little bit of envy or a little bit of pride. And oh, how foolish it would be to turn back to those things for deliverance when we're under pressure. How foolish it would be for us to seek salvation in the things from which Jesus has already set us free. This world is only mortal and its power is only flesh. We were saved from it. We will not be saved by it. And woe to us on the day that we forget that. Two hows. Peace will come through rest, not speed, and through the spirit, not the flesh. And now, two whens. Peace will come when the Lord spreads his wings. Look down at 31 and now verse 5, which is at the top of page 717. 31 verse 5. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and will rescue it. Isaiah mocked the horses of Egypt for being flesh and not spirit. So this might be a helpful time for us to remind ourselves just how powerful a spirit is. Spirits are what angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim are. Did you know that? Did you know angel isn't a type of being? It's a type of job. It's a word that just means messenger. But spirit, that is the sort of being that an angel is. Angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim are spirits, and they are spirits who serve the Lord of hosts which is a title for God that gets translated in this verse as the Lord Almighty and literally means the Lord of armies. 
angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim are spirits who serve the Lord and friends. They are unimaginably powerful. They don't burn like flesh. They blaze like fire. They don't puff like breath. They rush like the wind. In Isaiah 6, a few chapters back, six-winged seraphim hover over the throne of God, and the mere sound of their voices causes the doorposts and thresholds of the temple to shake. In Isaiah 37, a couple of chapters on, the angel of the Lord goes out to fight and puts to death 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we're told that all the angels in all the host of heaven have been given this purpose to serve you, to serve the children of God. So when Isaiah tells us in this verse, 31 verse 5, that the Lord of hosts will shield Jerusalem, Jerusalem like birds hovering overhead, I think we are supposed to be reminded of that truth. I think we're supposed to be reminded of the hovering six-winged seraphim from Isaiah 6. And I think we're supposed to have our eyes opened to the reality that then there in Jerusalem and now here in Westminster, there are more angels and archangels hovering around us than we would know how to number. That there are more, they are more powerful than we would know how to imagine, and that all of them have been sent by God to invisibly serve us. All souls, if we could see the wings that surround us right now, and the rushing, blazing brightness defending us, and if we could hear the songs that they sing over us as we sleep, I don't think there is a power on earth that we would feel intimidated by. God had his wings over Jerusalem, and he has his wings over his church. And one day, when the powers of this world have their eyes opened to see the blazing, burning host of heaven that God has arrayed around his children, well, the powers of this world will fall to the ground dead through sheer terror. But that isn't the end of the comfort that God has his people. In fact, it's barely even the start of the beginning. Because while these verses echo with the host of heaven, it isn't the angels who have Isaiah's focus in chapter 31. For all their brightness and soaring, rushing power, his attention is entirely elsewhere. His attention, verse 4, is on the God who reigns over the angels. Because the promise of this verse is that the God who reigns over all the legions of all the angels in all of heaven is coming down to do battle on Mount Zion himself. Like a mother hen, it is his own wings he will spread over Jerusalem. It is his own wings that he spreads over his children. And it is his own wings that he has spread over you. 
And here is how 32 verse 18 will come true. This is how God's people will come to live in undisturbed peace. God's people will come to live in undisturbed peace when Jesus treads Mount Zion, when he gathers his chicks under his wings, and when his people take refuge under his righteous rule, which is point four. Peace will come when we are ruled by Jesus's righteousness. If something is at peace, it means every part of it is working together in harmony under the rule that it was made to follow. For a garden to be at peace, it means all the shrubs and all the flowers are growing together in harmony under the rule of the gardener. For an orchestra to be at peace, it means all the cellos and trumpets are playing together in harmony under the rule of the conductor. For a human body to be at peace, it means all the thoughts and all the emotions, all the limbs and all the organs are working together in harmony under the rule of a sober mind. And for God's people to be at peace, it means all of his children living together in harmony under the rule of his righteous son. Verse 1 of chapter 32, look at it with me. See... A king will reign in righteousness. And then down to verse 3. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed. And the ears of those who hear will listen. The fearful heart will know and understand. And the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. If something is at peace... It means every part of it is working in harmony under the rule that it was made to follow. And brothers and sisters, Jesus' rule is the rule for which every part of each one of us was made. Under Jesus' rule, our eyes will see what they were always made to see. Our ears will hear everything that they were always made to hear. Our hearts will understand everything that they were made to understand, and our tongues will know all the right words for all the right things. Because Jesus' rule is the rule under which your body was made to come alive. But it isn't just your body that was made to come alive under his rule. This is the rule for which all creation has been patiently waiting when God's son is on the throne where he belongs and our hearts are ruled by the spirit they were made for, then nothing in all creation will be able to resist being put right. Jesus' reign is the reign for which God hung out all the stars, the moon and the sun. Jesus' reign is the reign for which God planted all the grapevines. Jesus' reign is the reign for which all the cattle and all the donkeys have been readying themselves. Under his reign, everything will finally become everything that it was always meant to be. Friends, peace means becoming what we were made to be under the rule we were made for. And we were not made to be ruled by Assyria. We weren't made to be slaves 
in Egypt or to take refuge in restlessness and lies. We weren't made to be overcome by the power of the flesh. We weren't even made to be ruled over by angels. We were made to be ruled by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is under that rule and only under that rule that we will know the peace of being everything that we were created to be. So brothers and sisters, this week, don't settle for anything less than everything you were made to be. Don't settle for anything less than everything that your eyes and your ears and your heart were made to see and hear and understand. Don't settle for anything less than Jesus' righteous rule in your life. A day of peace is coming to this universe. And on that day, you will be everything you were made to be in harmony with everything else under the rule that you were made to follow. So... Do not give your mind to lies or your heart to restlessness. Don't give your eyes or your ears to the enslaving power of the flesh. Let your body and let your soul be ruled now by the king who will be reigning then. Because God has made us for himself. And in the famous prayer of St. Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. As the band come up, let me close using a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. It's actually a prayer for a few weeks' time, but it's very fitting to these chapters. So let me pray. Almighty God, who alone can order the unruly wills and affections of sinful people like us, grant to us, your people, that we may love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the very many changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.